Well, good morning. I do count it a privilege to be with you all this morning and um, very thankful uh, for the invitation. Um, but I do understand that uh, there are like SC graduates and alumnus out there, so I don't want to offend anybody. So any SC graduates out there? I'll, okay, so I won't tell my SC jokes. Let's scratch that one. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but I will pray for all you SC folks. Um, I did. I met my wife at UCLA, and uh, um, I just uh, love my time there at UCLA, not because it was the greatest school in the history of the world, but because God gave us a tremendous open-door opportunity for the gospel and to minister there at UCLA. And I'm always excited to hear about the legacy and the fruit of that ministry. It was a Scrag tag team of a few of us, a good friend of mine, Rocky, I grabbed three guys on campus and just said, hey, would you want to start a Bible study? And the three of them met and started praying right in the middle of the campus between uh, Powell Library and uh, well, right in the quad area. And then it grew to seven. And after a while, they thought they needed a teacher, so they invited somebody from one of the seminarians from Grace to come and start teaching, and it grew to 20 or so, and that's when I joined uh, the group. And Campus Crusade had eight full-time staff people. It was like this professional machine on campus, and it was just us unstaffed, untrained guys sharing the gospel, and eventually the study grew to, to over 100. I think we had the largest Christian group on campus, and, and now I think at the 25th year anniversary, I found out that it's the largest student ministry on campus, and that just is encouraging to me. So when Hugh is asking me to come and to share with you all, I was excited to come because I know many of you all did come through that ministry and thank God for the privilege of, of helping lay a foundation for that ministry. What I want to do with the time I have uh, with you today is I want to tell a story. I want to tell the Bible story. And specifically, I want to tell the introduction to the Bible story. I've titled this sermon an introduction to salvation history, and I'm going to survey Genesis 1 through 4 and look at a couple key passages along the way. And what prompts me to want to do that, to go back to the beginning and lay a foundation for salvation history or introduce to you a, a, a theology of salvation history, is because the world that we live in is broken beyond our imagination, that we see it, we see how broken it is, and we don't always grapple with how profoundly broken it is, the, the devastating effect that sin has had on creation. I think if we think about it, we would be in despair for a moment if we didn't leave that in the context of the story that God is telling about salvation history. Uh, I, I, I love being a pastor. I Thank God uh, for the privilege of doing weddings. I love doing weddings and watching couples come down the aisle and the googly eyes and all that stuff. I, I enjoy doing baptisms. I love it when, you know, people come and make professions of faith. I did a high school camp uh, for a dear friend of mine, Tim Carnes, who's another Grace on Campus alum, alumnus, and he uh, is pastor of Calvary Bible Church. And I did the high school camp, and I think about four or five of the high schools made professions of faith. That's just a great, 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 great privilege, and I, I love that. But there's another side that I, I deal with as a pastor, and, and it's an ugly side. It's, it's the side when I get called to a home and there's a two-year-old baby, and there's a tumor, a cancerous tumor, protruding out of his head. 
and he's going to die. And what do you tell that mother? There are times when I get called and I, I'll get a call and it's a friend of mine and he wants me to do his son's funeral because he was in the middle of South Central rapping in a rap war with another guy and said something that offended that guy and the guy pulled out a knife and stabbed him to death. And then what do you say? Or I was, because of the context that I'm in, being in a, in, I served in Watts for a long time and right in the heart of South Central. When the L.A. riots broke out, I was, the church I passed was right there. And so I see, I see things that would just devastate and break our hearts. I, I, there's a friend that I have, and it's, he had to go to the morgue and identify his son because his son was wrapped up in duct tape with a bullet hole through his head. And they couldn't find the murderer. And so as a pastor, what do you say and what do you do when you get a chance to see just a glimpse of how, how depraved this world really is and the, the ugly, awful consequences of sin, that we all will see it. But something about being an American and living in this culture and our society kind of glosses over the ugliness of sin and what sin has done to utterly destroy the beauty and glory of God's creation. That we, we, we don't think a whole lot about death. We have hospitals and doctors. So when I'm in Kibera, it's the largest slum in Africa, and they have no, no government services. They have no running water. They have no electricity. They have 12 by 12 mud huts, and there's no garbage collection. So the kids are running up and down playing on, on like, tracks trash piles, and half of the people there are dying of AIDS. And you see that, and there's no medical services. And then you come back home, and you see this. You, you, you're tempted to think that, that somehow the kingdom of God has arrived, and we're living in a utopia, but we're not. And every now and then, we get a glimpse. God allows us to see the, the utter depravity of the world and the, the devastating effect the sin has had. You, you wake up, and you look at a 9-11, and you see things like that, and, and it just awakens us that something drastic has to happen to the world in order to reconcile it and make it the place that God originally made it to be, the revealer's glory and the wonder of it all. And so I want us to look at the story, what God is going to do with his broken creation. But I want to go back to the beginning, and I want us to look carefully at the introduction. To, to understand an antidote, you've got to figure out what the problem is very carefully. If you want to look at a solution and you start throwing out solutions, but this has to happen, then you have to first know what the problem really is. I had a friend when I was studying kinesiology at UCLA, and he was a chiropractor, and he told me of a case where this guy came in with all kinds of back problems. You know what chiropractors do. They put you on the table and crack you that way and put you on and crack you the other way, and you walk out and you're feeling great, Right? So this guy gets on the table, but when he went to crack him, something, something went wrong. It wasn't just an alignment issue with his back. This chiropractor didn't do an x-ray first, and he had some degenerative bone disease and almost shattered the guy's spine. In order to have a solution, you have to know what the problem is first. And so I want to go back and look at how God made it, what went wrong, and what God, will, what God predicts and what God is doing to bring about a solution to our broken very fallen world. But I, I want us to pray first. I know you all prayed, and I know we prayed, and I, I thank you that you've been praying, but we bowed me as I asked God to help us this morning. Father, we 
we need your grace. We need your mercy. We, we want to be lights, and it is getting darker. We want to be salt, but we sense that our culture and everything around us is rotting and decaying. And Father, so we want, Lord, you to use us. And so I ask, God, in the time that you've given us today, that you would bring great clarity to us from your word what it is that you're doing to fix, resolve the problems on planet Earth. And I pray that, Lord, you would make it clear from your word so that we would confidence be able to stand on it and serve you faithfully until you come again. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. With that, I'll invite you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. And I know you all looked at Genesis some time ago, and, um, and I'm thankful for that. It will help some of the things that I want to say, because I'm only going to hit a couple verses as we go through. In Genesis 1.1, perhaps the most one of the profoundest statement that has ever been written and uttered in all of literature and history, it says, in the beginning God created that here, what we do, do with this text in our Western culture, kind of yank it out of its ancient East, Near Eastern context, we just deal with this often in terms of a science-evolution debate, and sure it fits into all that, that God created everything out of nothing. When it says, in the beginning, it gives you a temporal sense that this happened before any time was, and what happened was there was nothing in God created. He brought everything into existence, seen and unseen, out of nothing. And the text says God did that. God created the heavens, the sky, the universe, everything. God created everything and the earth, and he created everything out of nothing. First and foremost, what this is, it is a theological statement about the reality that there is a God, and he is infinite in all of his ways. Just think about this for a second, that there is a being named God who spoke, and there were billions of galaxies that popped into existence with billions of stars in them, some of them millions and millions of times larger than the star, the sun that we have in our universe, and God did all of that. I'll just never forget sitting in some of my UCLA classes, in my Bio 5 class, which is probably five times larger than this, and my professors are just trying to uh, brainwash all the freshman students in there that that evolution is the cause of everything. But if you have nothing working on nothing for trillions and trillions of years, you end up with what, what everybody? You end up with nothing, right? You can talk to me. You, nothing times nothing times nothing for a billion times is still nothing. And so here I'm sitting in these classes, these revered scientists with all, all, all the degrees behind their names. And what is true of them is what it says in Romans chapter 1. Professing to be wise, they were fools. They were fools because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they believed the lie rather than the truth that everything came into existence because there is a God who spoke it into existence. And this staggers the mind to think that there is someone so powerful, so wise, so infinite in all of his ways that he could create everything and sustain everything from every cell in your body, from every star that's in the universe, and he controls all of those because he is God. And so what here Moses is writing, as God has inspired every word, for the Israelites who had just been free from captivity for 400 years, who were pagans at that point, they were Egyptians, they were culturally pagan, 
when Moses is up at the top of the mountain for too long, they make, they make their God. They make, they make a version of God, a golden calf. They had been effectively paganized. And so what God wanted them to know after saving them to serve him, to be a kingdom of priests, this royal nation, this special possession, what God wanted them to know first and foremost, the lesson that God taught them, the very first words in the Bible, this is who I am. I am God. I'm always sovereign. I'm always in control. There's nothing too hard for me. My might is limitless, and I am your God. And as he presents himself as an all-powerful, all-sovereign God, there is but one response, and it's not to satisfy intellectual curiosity. Here Moses writing, this is your God. This is the one you must bow down before. He made you. He sustains you. He is infinitely awesome in all of his ways. And for anyone who, by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, through the revelation of God, sees this, what Romans 1 says is they must worship him. To reject God and not to be thankful is the cardinal sin that we make. And so here Moses introduces us to God and tells us throughout the rest of this chapter what he did in taking this formless earth and shaping it, this void earth and filling it. And then it climaxes in chapter 1, the, the creation narrative climaxes, and says in verse 26, Then God said, Let us... Make man our humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God makes everything, and then on the sixth day, he makes man. And here's the climax of God's creation. He makes, he makes a, a being that he describes, God does, that is in his image and in his likeness. And you just have to stop and say, wow, what, what is that saying? That this infinite God that we found out about in verse 1 makes a finite being. He makes this finite being in his image, and the text says, according to his likeness or our likeness, it says, according to our likeness, and the text here is, is saying something, and, and it has, it's saying something that we have to grapple with every single day when we think about who we are. I, I would dare think that if I ask each and every one of you, who are you? I would get a variety of different answers, but I don't know that I would get this answer. Perhaps I would get the answer that I'm a school teacher, I'm a, I'm a mom, I, I'm, I'm a doctor, I, I, I'm a, you know, I, I drive buses, I you know, I, I go crazy. I, I just go crazy all the time because my kids drive me crazy, whatever we would say. But we're described basically not who we are, but we say something to the essence of what we do. This text says that over and above everything in all of creation, that we are like God, the invisible God who has no body. He made an image, and that means that we are the representations of the invisible, infinite God. That's what that means. And how do we represent him? We represent him because we've been made like him in order to represent him. So, that, so, so, so the text is telling you this, that we have this profound privilege and duty every single day, every hour of every day, every second of every day, are reflecting the glory of God. He made us to reflect his glory. Sure, the heavens tell the wonder and glory of God in Psalm 19. That's what they sing all day long. Just, Go out there. They're saying, God is great. 
God is awesome. God is powerful. God is big. I used to ask my kids, why did God make the universe so big? There are galaxies and stars we'll never see. Why did God do that? We'll make the most powerful telescopes, put them out of space, and you can't see the end of it all. Why did God do that? Because he wanted to show how big he is. And this infinite, glorious God wanted a better picture than the stars to reflect his glory, and that picture is you. He said, yeah, but I'm not that tall. I'm not that muscular. I'm not that, I'm this or that. I don't like my hair. I, I, I don't like my, compl- I, I don't like all the, God said that you've been fearfully and wonderfully made to reflect his glory. There's a purpose to your existence that God, the invisible God who has no body, gave you likenesses. So the likeness is not in our physical makeup. The likenesses are in our attributes. And the fact that we have rationality, that we're volitional, that we're emotional, that we're relational. God gave us all those things so that we would be like him so that we could represent him, so that we could represent our God. And then in verse 26, it gives the reason that God made us like him. There's a, that, there's a little purpose idea in here. It's kind of hidden in the Hebrew text when it says, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And some scholars would translate the rest of that verse this way, and I would too. Um, for the purpose or in order to let them or order for them to rule, that God made us in his image according to his likeness so that we would rule, so that we, he, he placed under our stewardship creation itself. So he made us like him so that we could do what he does in a sense so that we could rule over creation on his behalf for his glory. And then the text goes on in verse 28 and, and speaks of the blessedness of this privilege and says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it says, subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let me stop here. Some scholars would call this um, like a creation mandate, a culture mandate that, and they were in, in, infused in this text the idea that what God made us to do is to go out and kind of tame the earth, to build bridges, boats, um, to pull weeds, to do things like that. Um, but the language of the text just doesn't suggest that. that. That here when it says that God wanted them to subdue and rule creation, that language is used throughout the rest of the historical books in the Old Testament. And the idea of subdue is what Joshua did when he subdued the land, when he defeated all the Canaanites. It's what David did when he conquered all the enemies of God. He, he brought them under subjection by force if necessary. It's a militaristic term is the idea here. And so what God here is saying to Adam and, and Eve is that in making them in his image and likeness, he gave them authority so that they would keep creation underneath his lordship and subdue it if necessary. To keep everything, God made everything, it says in verse 31, behold, it's very good, not in an aesthetic sense, but everything was fitting according to God's purpose. And it was Adam and Eve's privilege to have dominion over creation, to keep everything underneath God's perfect authority and rulership and kingship, and to use force if necessary to do that. And the text says, subdue it and rule, that you can't rule if you don't subdue. If you get subdued, then you're the one who's ruled. 
That's the case. That's what happened in the land of Canaan. All these, I could give you text after text after text that suggested that Joshua subdued the land and David subdued the land and ruled over it. In fact, that's, let, me, let me give you one example of that. And you can turn in First, in first Chronicles 18, 1, it suggests that now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. That's what the language means. In 2 Samuel 8, 11 and then 15 says, King David also dedicated these to the Lord with silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. So David reigned, verse 15, over all Israel. How did he reign? Because he subdued all the enemies. And so here, this is the language of not just Adam and Eve will be gardeners and pull weeds, God gave them all of creation. That's not the language of a gardener. That's the language of royalty and the king. That here the text is saying that Adam and Eve were king and queen of all creation with this privilege of reflecting God's glory, with the charge to subdue anything and everything that seemed to deviate from the will of God and bring it under the will of God so that God's glory is seen and reflected in everything. That's God's chief motive in everything to reveal his glory. And Adam and Eve were the vessels that God wanted to use in creation to reveal his glory uniquely. So that was their privileged duty. Um, I have two of my kids here. I have six kids. And uh, my, little, my youngest daughter is back there. And I call her a princess. And I, you know, and I say, you're a real princess. And you're a real princess because your mother is a queen. And I mean that. And every since I, 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 just, I, I, I utterly believe that, that God made us so that we'll be kings and queens over creation. And he gave us the authority and the charge and the duty to subdue everything so that we can maintain that position of ruling creation. That's the blessing here. And, and God blessed them. What a blessing. Everything was theirs. God gave them this perfect creation and, to, and to, to rule over it. God gave them perfect spouses, and he, gave, he just blessed them with blessing. And namely, he gave them himself, that they would know God in the fullness of his glory, and they would walk with God. And chapter 1 says this is all very, very, very good. And you know the story, right? Everything didn't stay very, very good, right? And so what Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 says is this. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that word account, if you look through the rest of the book of Genesis, it typically will be translated genealogy or generations. It's a Hebrew word, toledoth. And it, it, at the, probably if you saw it in the Webster's Dictionary, it probably would say something like this, because here there's no geni- stars and moons and the earth won't have descendants. So it's not talking about just a family line. Sometimes we see the word genealogy, we think just a family line or a generation, just a family line. But the word, it it, it has a broader meaning than that. And verse 4, I think, gets at the heart of it. It means this is the story about, this is the account of, this is what happened to. So God makes creation perfectly, and he puts Adam and Eve over it to rule and subdue it if necessary, to keep it perfect. And then you have to ask the question, well, what happened to it? And I'm glad you asked that question because that's what chapter 2 is going to tell us. This is the story. This is what happened to the heavens and the earth. And the way that you read Genesis is you read uh, an episode, and then what Moses would do, he'll give another 
generations of our genealogy word, a total off the word. And he starts the next story and the next story. And so Genesis is a bunch of stories, a story about Abraham, a story about Joseph, and a story about this is the story about the heavens and the earth. What happened to them? How do we get into this plight that we're now in? What happened to God's very good creation that he blessed and Adam and Eve were to subdue and rule? What happened to all of it? Well, that's what Genesis is going to tell us in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. You don't get the next generations of until chapter 5, verse 1. And then that starts the story. This is the story of man in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the story. This is the account of this is what happened to Adam. This is what happened to man. But what happened to the heavens and the earth is told for us in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And let me do that. And let me just call the first point of your taking points. Chapter 1, just the story of creation. In chapter 2, 3, and 4, this is the story of the fall. This is what happened to creation. Um, God gives a detailed account of creating man, and he made Adam first. And when he made Adam first, that, that was theologically significant. So that when you read about ruling and subduing in chapter 1, those, that, those heavy words fell principally, not solely, but principally on Adam's shoulders. Adam was to be the head. He was by design to lead. God made him first for that purpose. And it tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, Eve has not been created yet. God is speaking solely and specifically and only to Adam. God commanded the man saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will certainly, surely die. And so Adam here has this charge from God, and and you've got to think real specifically about this prohibition that God gives him. It's unequal in every sense that you can think of that God put him in his perfect garden. There are trees galore everywhere around him. God says that you can eat from any tree of the garden freely, as much as you want. Adam, you can just be a glutton on top of a glutton. You can eat and throw up and eat and throw up and eat and throw up. You can eat every tree as much as you want, but that little itty-bitty old tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat from that one tree. In fact, you can even eat from the other tree, the tree of life. Here, what God is giving him is a privilege to reflect his love for God. Adam wasn't a robot. God wanted genuine love, and Adam can show his love for God. How? By choosing to obey. The Bible talks, commands us in Deuteronomy, the Shema, that we're to love God. We're to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can you command feelings? Here, when the Bible talks about love God, it's reflected in our obedience. It is an act of loyal allegiance to God, that God is worthy of worship. He's due worship. He's due adoration and praise. He's due everything that we can give him, and we show that by choosing to love and obey God. And God gives Adam that privilege to choose to avoid or not eat from this one tree. But when God commands, there are consequences. All decisions have consequences. We reap what we sow. So if Adam here chooses to eat from this one tree that he's prohibited from eating from, the text says that he will surely and certainly die. That would be the consequence. To not choose God, to choose something other than God, is to alienate yourself from God. Alienation from God is death. Separation from God in any sense is death. There's physical death when my body is separated from my, my soul is separated from my body. There's spiritual death being separated from God. There's eternal death. 
being separated from God forever, that if Adam were to eat this, all that he enjoyed of God, he would be separated from God. He would die, and that he would die spiritually from God. He'd be separated from all the blessings that God here has now given to him. Or he could choose to love God. He could choose God by not eating from this one tree and eating from every other tree, even the tree of life. That's the charge that God gave Adam. And it, it, does, it does have the sense of almost like a covenant here. You have blessings and you have curses that you'll die if you don't obey me. And then God made Eve. After God gave Adam that specific charge, he made Eve. And he made Eve, and chapter 1 makes it very clear. She's, every, she's equal to him. She's made in the image and likeness of God just like he is. And when the text says that she was made, you know, suitable or corresponding, she was his equal. That's how she could help him. But she wasn't the head. She was to be his helper. God made him and gave him the spiritual commandment, this charge. She was to come alongside him like queen and help him. And I like to tell brothers in the hood where I pastor that you need help. God said that you need help, and that's why you need to find a wife. I got all these guys, 40 years old, still playing Xbox and playing games. We're like, look, God, put the Xbox down. Go find a wife and get married because you need some help. All right, if you're single here, I don't know how you want to apply that. But anyway, that's for free. God said that it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then God did perform the first wedding ceremony. He made Eve from Adam's side, put Adam to sleep, and woke Adam up and brought Eve down the aisle, and it was glorious. And Adam responded to it that way. In verse 23 and 24, it says, The man said, This is now bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh, let me translate this very literally, and this one shall be called woman because this one was taken out of man. He was just, this text is infused with passion, and I'm sure if you've studied this, you know that, that he kept saying, this one, not, 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 the, not, not the giraffe, not the hippo, not, not this one. I, I want this one. God, thank you for this one. And so God brought the perfect mate for him, made him, made her in his image and likeness, and he brought her to Adam. And Adam was beyond, beyond ecstatic when God brought Eve to him. And the text says, as commentary to us in verse 24, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. That God here made these two people one person. It's a miracle that God does when he does a wedding. He made these two one, and they were both naked and not ashamed. And the text says in verse th- chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, Has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You've got to stop here. The text says that there's a serpent. And if I were to ask you, where did the serpent get his name from? You would tell me, Adam. Adam named all the animals in the garden. God put all the animals underneath Adam and Eve's authority. So Adam and Eve have authority over this animal. And God uniquely and only made Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. And the likeness is not a physical makeup of Adam and Eve. It's the fact that they have communicative abilities. They're rational beings. They're volitional beings. But all of a sudden, this animal that didn't have rational ability, volitional ability, communicative abilities, because it wasn't made in the image and likeness of God, is reflecting those things. It's talking. And so it says very clearly in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than 
are shrewder than any beast of the field. So it's an animal, but animals can't talk unless spoken through. Just like Balaam's donkey spoke, something is speaking through this animal, and Eve here has absolute authority over it and everything else in this context. And what this unseen spiritual being does, it says, indeed, has God said? He questions God. Questions God. The only thing Eve knew from God was his goodness, how he had blessed her, how he had loved her, how he provided for her. And now this voice comes through this animal, this serpent that they had absolute authority over, and is questioning God, saying, you should not eat from any tree of the garden? C- come on, Eve, wake up. How, how, how reasonable is that, that you get all these trees And you're telling me that God said that you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden? Get a clue, girlfriend. Wake up. You want to serve a God like that? You want to be under the authority of a God like that who just makes up rules just because he says he can and holds you under his thumb so that you can't do whatever you want to do? Eve, think about this with me. And she does. She's thinking about this. The spirit behind this animal cast doubt upon God's goodness. And then it says in verse 2, The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit trees of the garden we may eat. But she leaves out some important words and adds, in other words, God didn't say. She doesn't say freely. She doesn't say from any tree. From the fruit trees of the garden we may eat. And so there's a sense where you can see some movement already in her thinking. She wants to hear what this this crafty, shrewd being is saying, and so she begins to listen, and she's hearing what he's saying and is reflected in her response. But then she says, but from the fruit tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it, or, and she asks, touch it. She makes God's command harsh when God didn't say you can't touch it, just said you can't eat from it. And then God said, you will certainly surely die, and she just says, you will die. Um... Eve is heard and Eve is moved. Let me, and let me add one thing in here, and I want you to be Bereans. I want you to be a Berean when I say this. In verse 3, where it says, the fruit tree, which is in the middle of the garden, that, that's a, that, that term describes space between her and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's in the middle of the garden. She didn't say the tree right here. She said the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Can I suggest to you she wasn't standing underneath the tree? that tree over in the middle of the garden. And so here she says, that tree, God said that we can't touch or eat, the one that's in the middle of the garden. So I'm suggesting she, that when the serpent came to her, they weren't standing underneath the tree at that point. And, and, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. And so the serpent has an audience now. And so verse 4, he goes beyond just casting doubt. He goes into a direct denial of what God said and called God a liar. The serpent said to the woman, and he took the exact same Hebrew phrase that God used when he warned Adam, and he wasn't there, and he told Adam, you will certainly die. The serpent negates and says, you will certainly not die. You will surely not die. Eve, God has lied to you. God is a liar. You can't trust God. He lied. In order to make someone believe a lie, you have to add a motive, right? Why would God lie? Well... Then he defames God's character in verse 5. For God knows 
that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here's why God lied to you, Eve. This is why God said you can't eat from that tree. Because the moment that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. The text says that you'll be like God. Didn't God already make her like him? But how would she be like God? Isn't it good to be like God? Not in this sense. The sense that the serpent says you'll be like God. You'll be free from God because you'll be able to choose for yourself good and evil. You won't have to submit to God. I'll listen to God's commandments. You'll be independent to decide for yourself. This is good and this is evil. You'll be, here to see how idea. You'll be the first feminist. You'll be liberated, Eve. You'll be free to do whatever you choose to do. You won't have to live under God's authority, Adam's authority, anybody's authority. You'll be like God, free to decide for yourself what's right and wrong. And he called God a liar and defamed God's character by suggesting God had ill motives and giving them this prohibition. So Eve has a lot to think about because she listened. And verse 6 says this, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, now let me stop. Now she's at the tree, right? The serpent is gone. Serpent said what he said. He, he, he tried to deceive her, gave her doubt, deceived her, defamed God's character. And now she goes over to the tree, but she's not alone now. So now she goes over to the tree, but with Adam. That's what verse 6 is telling us. The serpent is gone, and he's not the voice anymore. The voice now is Eve talking. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, all the things that God said, here she's contradicting, and she's, not, she's believing that God really did lie. She put God, she, she actually moved God off of his throne as the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things seen and unseen. She removed God off of his throne. She put herself on the throne. And now I will rule over God. I'll decide if you can trust God. I'll decide if God's believable. I'll decide if God's character is trustworthy. I'm going to decide. So now she makes a decision. And her decision is the one thing God said wasn't good. She says it's good. She says it was good. And so she took it, wanting to be wise, wanting to be free, wanting to be independent of God, and so she decided for herself. And so she took it, and she ate it. And then it says in verse 6, she gave also to her husband with her. So at that point, Adam is there. He's watching this whole thing. And we recall clearly God gave Adam the initial prohibition, right? So Adam is watching her, right? So he's like, just like, okay, let me see. All right, go ahead, baby. You know, you can eat it. <laughs> you know? So he lets her eat the fruit. And nothing happened to her. Nothing happened. She ate the fruit. Nothing happened. And then it says she gave to her husband, and he ate, and then all hell broke loose in verse 7. When he ate, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin covering. The second he ate, sin entered creation. And the text and, I, and, and, and listen to this. It says, God, verse 8, the, came, the, the, they heard the sound of God, walk, the Lord God walking in the garden. And this is, just, this, this is describing the habitual actions of God. This is what God did. He fellowshiped with them. They had direct communion with God. He would walk with them in the garden. So God here comes into the garden. But this day is different because they're trying to hide behind the trees that were their blessing. They could eat from any tree of the garden. Now they're hiding behind it because they were instantly separated from God. They died. 
The second Adam ate of of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They died, and they were separated. And they sewed fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. And they heard God walking in the garden, and and they tried to hide from his presence. And then verse 9, listen to this. The Lord, then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And you don't see this in your English text, but in the Hebrew text, it says, where are you? That is a masculine singular pronoun. He's not saying, where are you? I grew up in the South and we would just say, you all, you know, where, where, where y'all? We say that. We're, I'm talking to everybody. But he's not talking to a group. He's not talking to Adam and Eve. He's talking exclusively, specifically, and only and solely to Adam. Adam, where are you? And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hit myself. And he said, who told you? masculine singular pronoun, that you masculine singular pronoun were naked. Have you masculine singular pronoun eaten from the tree, which I commanded you masculine singular pronoun not to eat from? God made Adam before he made Eve. He gave Adam the charge before he created Eve. And this whole calamity now that sin is now into creation fell solely and specifically on Adam's shoulder. Sin entered the world through one man, through one act. Adam rebelled against the God who he had the privilege, the opportunity to show his adoration, his love for by obeying. Adam chose to rebel against God. And now sin has come into God's once beautiful creation, the one thing that was wrong in all of creation, that he had authority to subdue and to rule over, he chose not to and ruined all of creation. We like to theologically call this a fall. This is no slip. He didn't step on a banana peel and, and accidentally fall. This is, this is, this is volitional. This is, this is mutiny. This is rebellion. This is rejecting God. This is appalling. This is shocking that he would openly, with his open eyes, rebel against the glorious God who made him. And there is no excuse. But he has them. In fact, passivity still is the ruling reign of men today. Make excuses for everything. Adam's wife is there. He could have protected her. He had authority to subdue. He did nothing. He was passive. His passivity led to sin ruining creation. And sometimes today in churches, you you, you want men to step up, men to lead, men to do something, and they're passive. So here, Adam was passive. He just let eat. And this is the monstrosity of what happened. God was gloriously on his throne, made Adam and Eve under him, and the animals under them. They took God's order and design and threw it up on the side of his head. Now they're submitting to the animal and Eve, and then it's Adam, and then they put God on the bottom. So what God called very good, not in an aesthetic sense. He called good because it, it, it reflected his, his design, his order, what he wanted. Now they've taken that order, that design, and turned it upside down on his head. And today we worship everything. God, I mean, we worship everything. You can kill a fetus in the womb, but God help you if you, you know, step on some eagle's egg out somewhere on a hike. Be thrown in jail the rest of your life. 
worshipers of creation rather than worshiping the God. This is where this all came from. Alienated and separate from God. And so you know how it goes in verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave me blames God and Eve. Blames everybody. Who else? I guess he would blame the monkey if he could have blamed the monkey. Well, Eve did it, and you gave me Eve. He said, I was all cool by myself playing. I, I, I made, you know, I had the coconuts, and I was playing coconut basketball, minding my own business. Then you brought Eve over. I, that, that was your doing. I was all straight. So he blamed everybody, took zero responsibility. And, this, and I don't want to shock you with this, because this sounds shocking when, I, when, when sometimes people hear this. Uh, I know God made clothings and covered them and all that, but Adam never repents. He never repents. Adam is the father of death. Everybody who is in Adam is in death. In order to be in life, you have to be in Christ. Everybody who is in Adam is in death and will be under the wrath of God forever. And I'm shocked to think, how could somebody say how everybody who is in Adam is in death? But Adam is not in death. Adam is burning in hell right now. So here... As a consequence of rejecting God, he brought death into creation and ruin into creation. And it's awful. Read chapter 4. The story of what happened to creation, this is what happened to it. God put everything under Adam and Eve's stewardship, and they ruined everything. Now it's separated from God. Even the creation itself is groaning for recreation. And in chapter 4, it's not as if you have just murder now. You have fratricide. A brother kills a brother. So death will be a part of it. Yeah, you'll have murder trials. You'll have infamous murder trials, and they won't stop. And people may divide all over them, but death is a part of our creation because there's sin in the world because of man. Um, and I know I've gone a little long. Let me just give one last point. I wanted to look at creation. I wanted to look at the fall. But now let me just show you this, this story of the introduction of the story of salvation. What does God do? God says, well, Satan... Oh, and I believe it's Satan speaking through the serpent. Revelation 9 and 20, chapters 9 and 20 specifically say the serpent of old was the devil. So that's the one speaking through this animal. So, so, so what does God do? Does he say uncle? That he, he said his plan was very good, that he would have uh, man be a king and woman be his queen, and they would rule over creation and bring it under his lordship and subdue it. As God says, well, you got me. Because now every single man is going to be born, it says in Genesis chapter 5, look there with me. In Genesis 5, it says in verse 3, Adam had lived 130 years, and he became the father of a son and in his own image, according to his, I mean, according to his own likeness, according to his image, named him, and named himself, that every single person after this is going to be made in Adam's fallen image and likeness. The sin would go from Adam to every other creature, every other being after that. So how is anybody going, if Adam you know, this man who's in a state of untested holiness can't defeat this spirit behind the serpent. How is, could Abraham do it? Could David do it? Could, who, what, what man could possibly do this? And so it seems as if the serpent is one. Christ called him the God of this world. When Adam died, there's an empty throne and Satan sat himself on it. And you want to wonder why the world is so bad? Read Ephesians 6. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. That in our, in our Postmodern society, we're so enlightened. We, we think it's boogie boo stuff to really think about there's a real spiritual being called Satan who wants to destroy you, wants to destroy our nation, wants to destroy our kids, and we need spiritual weapons to fight against spiritual enemies. Politics won't do it. Legal decisions won't do it. We've got to stay on our knees with the gospel. But here we are in a world that's ruled by the God of this world. We have spiritual weapons 
2 Corinthians 10 tells us, 4 and 5, but we don't always use those. <laughs> and we want to fight against Satan on this terms that he wins a lot of those battles. He'll win those battles when we do that. So what does God do? In Genesis 3.15, look there with me. As God is judging all the participants in the fall, uh, he says this to the serpent. I will put enmity, and that's a word for hostility, war. There's going to be war. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood because we're in a war. The Old Testament has this militaristic kind of flavor to it, and it's still here today. We're in a war, and it's in a war not against flesh and blood. Here's the war. And what you do in beginnings of stories that you introduce things, and as the story goes on, it develops them. And so here you have all the major players. You have God, you have man, you have the serpent, all introduced in germinal form here in the prologue of the Bible, and the rest of the Bible story history develops these things. And so here you have Satan at war. It says between you, that's Satan, or the spirit speaking behind the serpent, and the woman, between your seed or descendants and her descendants. And so there are two kinds of people here outlined who will be in spiritual conflict with. And then it says, and he will bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Scholars today, a lot of scholars, they want to make these all plural, and I can explain that in a second, but it's not. The, the second half of this verse is not plural. It says he, one of the descendants of the woman, at some point is going to bruise you, serpent, on the head, which is a mortal blow. And if I were to ask you, if a serpent bruises him on the heel, what kind of a blow is that? You don't know. It depends on what kind of serpent it is, right? It could be a mortal blow. And how do you find out? You have to read the rest of the story, right? And so here the text tells us that God didn't just say uncle when the serpent defeated Adam. It says here he's going to bring up another man, and another man is going to crush his head. And so in order to find out who that is, you have to read the rest of the Bible. And what verse 15 does is it gives you an outline of human history, one of spiritual conflict until the one comes of the woman who crushes the serpent head, and that will end history. I, I, I want to give this, Anna, this one little quick thing, and I'm, and I'm going to be done. Uh, why did Adam sin? I want you to really think about this for a second. The New Testament tells Eve sinned because she was thoroughly deceived. But why did Adam sin? Verse 17 tells you in, in very clear language. It says, and then, and then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And I don't want to get any married men in trouble because you have to listen to the voice of your wife. You need to. Um, when the Bible uh, has a picture when it personifies wisdom in Proverbs, it does it as a woman, lady wisdom. The father's telling his son to embrace lady wisdom. Don't let her go bind around your neck. The climax of Proverbs is this wise woman in Proverbs 31. God told Abraham, listen to the voice of your wife, Sarah. But you don't listen when she tells you to do the opposite of what God says. Amen? That's not a time to get passive. That, when Mrs. Job told Job to curse God and die, Job didn't listen at that point. And here, Adam didn't listen to the serpent's voice. The serpent told Eve was gone. Eve got Adam and took Adam over to the tree. The voice that Adam listened to was Eve's voice. He listened to her voice. She took the fruit and told him to eat it, and he listened to her voice, and he ate it. Why is that significant? Because that tells you why Adam sinned. To listen to the voice of someone throughout the Old Testament is speaking in terms of, uh, of, of treachery and covenant breaching, breaking ways.
why were the Israelites, why were they given over to judgment from God? Because they listened to the voice of the gods of the lands. And you can just Google, just, just look that up. And in 2 Kings 17, 12 through 15, let me read you these verses, and it says this. Speaking of Israel and why God judged them, they served idols concerning which the Lord said, had said to them, you should not do this thing. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all of his prophets and every seer, saying what? Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments, my statutes, according to the law which I commanded your fathers, which I sent to you through, the, through my service of prophets. However, they did not listen, but stiffened their neck like their fathers who did not believe in the Lord their God. That, that, that's, that's, that's covenant-breaking language. That, that's, that's covenant treachery. That's mutiny, and that's what Adam did. He listened to Eve's voice, rejected God, and followed, can I say it, follow Eve. Now the question is, why did he follow Eve? Um, th- that's why you have to read chapter 2, 3, and 4, all connected together as the fall narrative. Because the marriage narrative that's set up in chapter 2 is directly connected to the fall narrative for a reason. So that you will see the two inter- inter- interconnected. And how is that? That, that, that when, when the original recipients of the Bible got a Bible, they didn't all have a King James Bible walking around. You know that, right? They didn't have a text. They, they, they heard it. They they heard it as it was read to them. And the way that you connect text together to an audio, to a listening audience, is you do what homonyms, words that sound like, are words that are repeated a lot. And so here in this text, it says at the end of the marriage narrative, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And verse 3 connects, chapter 3, verse 1 connects the marriage narrative to the fall narrative when it says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. How did they connect? Did you hear it? How did that connect to an audio listener? Let me try to explain it this way. What do we know about Eve? I don't know if she liked to, you know, make fruit pies. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know hardly anything about Eve. But we do know one thing about Eve because the text says it over and over and over and over again. We know that she was naked. And we know that when God brought her to Adam, he had a heart attack. And we also know this, that the serpent was there during the marriage narrative because he quotes everything that God has said to Adam about not eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He was there and he watched Adam's response to Eve. And he said, if I need to get Adam to fall, the best way I can get Adam to fall is I can tempt Eve to seduce Adam to rebel against God. And there are no tricks. There's no new things under the sun. Satan is doing the same thing today. If he wants to get men to fall, he gets women to take off their clothes and advertise aspirin. Everything is advertised with nudity today. And why is that? There's nothing new under the sun. And if if you're not convinced of that, just read the fall narrative. Why does it say over and over again, verse verse 7, they were naked. Verse 10, they were naked. Verse 11, they were naked. Why does it say naked, 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 naked? Because... The serpent seduced Eve to seduce Adam through her nakedness. And the porn industry today knows something that we don't always think about, that Satan is warring against us, and he wants to use nudity and nakedness to do it. It's one of his many, many, many effective tools. It says it explicitly in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, that Satan tempts our our, our undisciplinedness with immorality. So So Satan here, he tempts Adam through Eve. But here's the poetic justice. So the serpent 
seduced Eve to seduce Adam to get him to fall. And God says in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to get another woman, and I'm going to bring another man to crush your head. You use a woman to get my first man to fall. I'm going to get a woman to bring another man to crush your head. And you read the rest of the Bible. You know the rest of the Bible about who is that man? So it's telling you that he is a son of Abraham. He will be a son of Judah, that he will be a son of David. And the New Testament opens up and tells us in Matthew chapter 1 that he was the seed of the woman, not born at all from Joseph, but specifically and exclusively from Eve. And that's not enough. Galatians 4.4 says that at the right time, God brought him into the world through a woman. Let me end, and I'm going to sit down with this, um, that how is God going to fix this whole mess that the first man created that we live in? Well, he has an answer. <laughs> and it's the coming man. The Old Testament pictures and prophesies who he's going to be. The New Testament tells us who he is, and his name is Jesus, right? Uh, I have a preaching friend who tells the story of a very rich man who uh, had, he loved animals, and so he would get the finest bred animals in the world. He had like a zoo in, in his house, and one day he told all of his servants, he said, I want you to go find the scraggliest alley dog that you can find, and I want you to bring him to me. And they were all confused. Why, why would you, why, you have all the best animals in the world. Why would you want a stray, straggly alley dog? And so they did. They went out and found the straggliest, ugliest alley dog that they could find. And the dog stayed with him just a couple of days, and he fed him and mended his wounds and, you know, did everything he, for this dog. And then the dog just took off. And all the servants were like, you know, it's, it's an alley dog. They live in alleys. That's what they do. So uh, they, they, just, they were just confused why, why he would even do that. But then a couple of days went by, and guess what? That straggly dog came back. But he didn't come back alone. He came back with every other alley dog he could find. <laughs> and he said, there's a man that will feed you, who will love you, who will clothe you, who will mend your wounds, who take care of you. The Bible has a story of hope, that, that, that God made everything right, we ruined it, but there's a story of salvation history with hope that there's another man who came and his name is Jesus, and he won't stop until he's made everything right, wiped away every tear, he's destroyed every disease, he's conquered every foe, and he brings righteousness to gospel. He is reconciling everything back to God, and his name is Jesus, and God wants us to preach him, to trust him. To love him. Amen. Father, I thank you for this time you blessed us with. And I pray, Father, that no matter how broken the world is, that you would just instill us with hope and faith in Christ, to trust in him, not in man, not in political processes, not in judicial systems, not in science and health and our strength, but to trust in Jesus because he's able. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. God bless you.